0: how does your partner
1: feel she seems to be doing okay she's um she's handling house arrest much better than, than i would be she's working from home she... yeah and here all the time she mostly chases the cat around the house and i think that's her stress relief <laughs> <She's>, uh, <laughs> chasing <laughs> chasing the cat and the
0: cat's probably thinking what yes. the hell's going on they're both around yes. a lot and i mean chase. exactly
1: <laughs> yeah cats think wow <laughs> things were a lot more peaceful before the, the coronavirus came along <laughs> It's funny though. the The cat will when when Lana is on a phone call for work, the cat just goes crazy. She can't handle it. She she'll start meowing and, and chasing around the house, and it's it's pretty it's pretty comical to watch. That's yeah, funny. Yeah. So I think they they take turns stalking each other throughout this thing. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Hi, I'm Sally Bibb. Thanks for listening to The Lockdown Diaries, Human Stories from around the world. Harry, my producer, and I have honestly been amazed at some of the reactions we've had to the first episodes. Here's what one person said. The Lockdown Diaries is a fantastic and much needed addition to my podcast library. Very real and relatable, with both inspiring and truly heartfelt moments. Just overall, really honest, it always helps to hear other people's experiences. Honestly, it's just fantastic to hear that sort of feedback, so um, we're really grateful. For this episode, we go over to California to Jim, an ER doctor. I met Jim sailing in Greece a couple of years back and I really liked him and I was intrigued by the non-traditional route he'd taken into medicine. This episode gives us a vivid insight into the inner and outer world of an ER doctor. And here we join our conversation just as Jim is describing the eeriness of waiting for the pandemic to hit his hospital. You said that the uh, looming coronavirus is like the monster that you're all you know, bracing yourself for at your hospital. Has it arrived yet?
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't say significantly uh, increased numbers yet. We're still seeing maybe a, a, a handful more cases. Um, but yeah, still not the the onslaught, scary, overwhelming numbers that uh, that we, we were expecting. Statistics seem to show that it's leveling off or starting to. Whether or not there's going to be another bump is just, it's the great unknown still. So we'll just have to wait and see. I know for sure other parts of the country are, are you know, still... Very overwhelmed. Uh, New York, Chicago, and, and, and places like that. I think I uh, um, really having a tough time. So, they, yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's some question or some at uh, Stanford. I believe is is researching whether there's already some some herd immunity in California, and, and possibly we may have had uh, the coronavirus here in in the fall or October or so. If I had to guess, I'd say that won't pan out, but uh, but it certainly would be an interesting thing to, to look into.
0: It sounds incredibly uncertain and almost um, almost like it's a bit of a holding pattern that you're in. I mean, is is it quiet at work? Are You in playing the feel like you're playing the waiting game
1: yeah yeah it's very quiet i mean people you know everyone's staying or most people are staying home and uh so you know people aren't you know riding skateboards bikes or, or just doing things where, where they're getting injured and and also people aren't in contact with a lot of people in mass gatherings like sporting events concerts things like that and or, or even at work, um, you know, where you would normally just catch a cold or, or you know, catch pneumonia or anything like that. So, so we're not even seeing those people coming in. And then the other thing too is everyone is is afraid to step foot in the ER, which uh, which they should be unless they're actually having an emergency. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's I mean, it's kind of it's it's an odd feeling, you know. There's there's been just just so much great outpouring of of support for for all of us frontliners. And half the time I'm sitting at work not really doing much and thinking, wow, I really don't deserve this because I'm really doing nothing <laughs> right now. But uh but I guess we'll we'll take the credit for the times in the past when it's been busy and I'm sure it'll it'll pick up eventually.
0: Well, I don't know if you can hear the clapping here because it's eight o'clock on Thursday night as I'm talking to you and um it's just dying off now. But how how do you feel about this? Because you're Sitting there, not doing very much, and I say that in the nicest possible right. way. <laughs> well, Colleagues in places like New York are, you know, traumatized, overwhelmed. What feelings are running through you about that?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I finally found my strength, which is doing absolutely nothing. So I've really <laughs> finally found my calling. <laughs> I find I'm I'm quite good at it. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's tough to to watch. Uh, there was actually just an email sent out by. By our company and the Governor Newsom of um, California, I guess is starting to look into maybe sending some physicians and nurses and, and frontliners, uh, maybe out to New York and other hotspots to to help out. And uh, and uh, so I, I request to get some more information on that. I I'm in a great spot where I I don't have to just sit back and watch this catastrophe unfold. I can actually try to do something about it, at least at least a little bit, a little bit of my part. So. So that would be, you know, this is probably. I hope at least a, a once in a lifetime uh, experience that we're all going through, and and to be able to be a very tiny, minute part of of trying to to help get everyone through it would be would be a great feeling. So, so I'd uh, I'd really look forward to being able to to try to go out to New York or wherever if if I'm able to and if the situation works out to maybe help a little bit.
0: Does it scare you? Uh,
1: not really. I mean, I don't know. Maybe because it just hasn't hit here very very hard yet so maybe once we really start getting overwhelmed it will um i don't know i guess i mean a little bit makes me a little nervous and it makes me certainly heightens my awareness when i'm dealing with a, a covid patient at work uh but i feel like as long as we're doing the right things as far as using uh personal protection then then you know we'll be okay and uh, and i guess it more i think I, I, I it scares me a little bit but but more so i i enjoy the Feeling that that you know I can help and such a such a big need right now so we're we're all all of us are, are yeah. um, at work or you know we're, we're blessed to be able to do that
0: do you think that um, deep down inside Jim Goldberg is a helper? do you think that's who you are and who you've always been and, and that's what led you to medicine
1: um, I don't know uh I I would not say that I'm the um, yeah I'm not the, the most altruistic person you know only out to help other people I mean I think I've maybe a little bit of balance of, of both um, uh, but certainly that was the reason I went into medicine is is you know I wanted to do something where I felt like I could at least try to give back a little bit or, or do something good for for you know the world or or just other people
0: because uh, I know that you haven't always been. Obviously, you haven't already been a doctor, but you came to it relatively late in life. And I was snooping around your Facebook page. I don't know what they call it. Um it's Facebook stalking or something. There's a term for it. Anyway, I was yeah. doing that. I was doing that. <laughs> and um, uh-huh. I saw quite a lot of photographs of you climbing very steep-looking mountains and hanging off kind of overhanging rocks. And I was wondering about your life back then. And yeah, tell us, tell me a little bit about what it was like then and what led you to decide to become a doctor.
1: Sure. Um, Well, the short story is the village market in Telluride, Colorado led me to be a doctor. But but it's, of course, a a little longer story than that. I'll try to make it as brief as I can. Um, Yeah, I would say that um, over other than just Trying to be just like anybody else, you know, a, a good kind person in general. I certainly wasn't going out of my way to to make the world a better place necessarily. Um, but just as a young kid, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Well, actually, I did know it. Just wasn't really what society would normally think is 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 what you should maybe I don't know should be doing. Um, I wanted to ski, rock climb, and and just have fun. I wanted just to be a, a young kid in his twenties, just bumming around the country, I guess. So uh, I went to school university, right out of uh, high school, just like most people do. And I just didn't really have a direction. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life other than not be in school. And uh, so I kind of spun my wheels for a while. You know, I, I did what I needed to do to get by, but I certainly wasn't taking school very seriously. And then I started rock climbing uh, and just little cliffs and and outcroppings, things like that. And I really got uh, excited about that. I really loved rock climbing at times. So then I ended up going to Colorado for just the summer, which was supposed to be only for the summer. So I went back to university at the end of that summer expecting to, you know, finish up and then figure something out to do with my life. But once I went back, it it just, it changed my perspective on everything. I just thought, God, what am I doing in in school? I mean, you know, I don't really have a purpose here. I don't really have a direction. And I just had so much fun out in Colorado. So then uh, I left school again for, I didn't know how long. I thought maybe it'd be just a year or so, but it ended up being about four or five years, something like that. And I was building houses. Uh, I was a carpenter during that time and doing a lot of rock climbing. And then I ended up moving to a ski town, which is Telluride. Uh, I taught skiing for a while and I would build a house or two live out of my tent in the summer, save up my money, go on rock climbing trips all around the country, eat peanut butter and jelly. And then when the the money and peanut butter and jelly ran out I'd go back to Telluride and and build another house. And that, that kind of went on for for years really and then the village market was where the big epiphany happened i've been living like this for years and, and very happy and i just you know one of the, the most just carefree happiest times of my life maybe but uh, the village market used to make hot dogs and chili dogs and they'd make them at like i don't know 10 or 11 in the morning they'd wrap them up in, in plastic wrap put them under heat lamps and then at uh, about eight or nine o'clock at night right before they closed they would mark those chili dogs and hamburgers down to five cents or seven cents. And I was just absolutely broke. I mean, I, I you know, hobbled my way back to town after a long climbing trip and I had no money. We were supposed to start this house, building this house again, but it kept getting pushed back due to permitting issues. And I was absolutely broke. And I remember looking under the the floor mats in my car for spare change so I could buy these just absolutely disgusting cheeseburgers. And I'm sitting outside Village Market with my handful of coins waiting for market down. And, I've, and they finally marked them down. And I remember sitting outside eating this, this just hard as rock cheeseburger. It was the most disgusting thing in the world. And you know, I'm halfway through this thing and just, it, it hit me like an epiphany. I said, I, I just can't do this anymore.
0: And did you decide sitting on that step that night? Did you decide there and then I'm going back to school? Or was there a period of what am I going to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely. So it makes for a better story to say that it was right there on the step and I never thought of it before. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the reality is, I mean, it was, it was starting to, you know, I kind of, I guess, accomplished a lot of things that I wanted to, uh, but, but it just kind of hit me all at once where it really came to a, a, a pinnacle, I think, outside the village market eating that cheeseburger. And, and so then I started working my way towards getting into school again and went back to school um, I had a statistics class. The first semester I was back in college. And my professor was doing research on head injuries on, on traumatic brain injuries, and I'd had a, a small concussion a few years later. And I remember him talking about it during his statistics class. He just kind of mentioned it briefly that he was doing research in that. And so I went up to talk to him after the class. He was the one that really kind of pushed me into thinking about maybe going into medicine. And I could, the more the wheels turned, the, the more it seemed like a, a, a good idea. And that's kind of from there it took off.
0: It's such an unusual and I think inspiring thing that you went into medicine later than probably most people do. It's it shows how big changes of direction are possible, and I imagine it could inspire people who might be rethinking what they want in life right now. So for you, having been a doctor for quite a few years and looking back on your career in ER, is there a standout moment or patient? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, um, absolutely, I know I know exactly the case. Um, yes, there was a, a young girl, and we get an ambulance call that they're coming in with a, a young girl who, um, a drowning victim, and and she was apparently, uh, was teaching a, a swim teacher at a local swim club, and they said she was swimming and, and just drowned, which first didn't really make much sense. How, why would a, a strong swimmer who's, who's teaching swimming drown? But anyway, Short story is she had an irregular heart, essentially an irregular heart rhythm that nobody knew about. And and so her heart just stopped. And so she came in and um, she was um, pretty much dead when she when she came in. She had no pulse. Her heart wasn't was called PEA, which had kind of unorganized rhythm that, that really isn't pumping the blood through well enough to keep anybody alive. And so we worked on her for quite a while. I mean, usually... If you're if you're trying to revive someone, you know CPR and, and other things, and it's more than a half hour, there, there's really no point in, in going on. I mean, you're not going to get them back, and if you do, they're going to be a vegetable for the most part. Uh, but I think that with her, we probably had um, short periods of time where we were able to uh, get her heart working and and perfuse her body enough to keep her going. But but I didn't know that at the time. So we ran this code. We we tried to to revive her for. If I, this is a long time ago, as many years ago, but I would say at least an hour, if not longer. And the parents were there, and I mean, the, the pediatric codes are just they're they're um, they're horrible. And um, and so I really only kept the code going because I knew they weren't ready.
0: What's the code, Jim? What's what's the code?
1: Oh, that's so doing CPR. You know, you have them on the ventilator. You're giving medicine and. And, and you know, like the electrical shocks with the pads to try and restart their heart mm-hmm. it's called a, a code blue when, when something like this goes on. and so a lot of the reason why I kept it going so long was because they they obviously weren't ready to, to let go. And so a lot of times what what I'll do in situations like that is kind of prepare them so you know things aren't looking good. I don't know how much longer we can go on, even though I may know at that time often that, that there's there's no chance there's no hope but you know you can't just stop immediately and and expect the, the parents to to, to do well so you try to do everything you can to to prepare them a little bit just let them see you know you know if they're in the room they can see yeah nothing's working there's no there's no heart rhythm there's you know no signs of life and so I kept kind of having discussion with them you know we'll try a little bit longer I don't think we're going to be very successful and then after like I said probably an hour or so um we got our we got a pulse back we got our heart going again and uh but I mean she had still no purposeful movements um so then our hospital is fairly small we don't have uh, a cath lab or a cardiologist in-house, at least at that time we do now. So we had to transfer her. So I had kind of this shell of a human being. I mean, she had no, she had no signs of life other than, than vital signs. She had a blood pressure and a pulse. But, and I didn't know how long that was going to last. I mean, she could very well, her heart could stop you know, any minute again. So I had to have this discussion with the parents that we had to transfer her to another hospital, which was probably about 15, 20 minutes away. Maybe shorter if the if the ambulance drives really fast, um, because there's nothing more we can offer her here. I mean, if she stays here, she's going to die. If we ch- transport her, she she might make it there alive. She might make it there dead. She may die uh, on the way there. But we don't really have much of a choice. I mean, there, there's not much more to offer her at the hospital we were at. So I had to have this discussion with with the parents that um, you know they I I can't promise your child won't and won't die on the way to the next hospital. And they, they understood. And so we transported her there. And um, I don't know how it happened. And I don't know all the details of what went on once we finally got her down there. But but she walked out of the hospital with no deficits probably a month later. Oh, my gosh. It was just amazing. And then I ended up, um, she actually ended up going into nursing, I heard. But uh, I also saw the the parents came into the, the ER many years later also for, for an unrelated and, and I walked in the room and, and I introduced myself and it, it looked like they saw a ghost. You recognized them? I didn't at first, no. No, they, they recognized me by my name and, um, and they looked like they saw a ghost when I walked in. <laughs> so, and so they, they said, Dr. Goldberg? I said, I said, yes. And usually when people say that, it, it's not for a good reason. <laughs> so <laughs> but oh no, what happened? <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, then they said, you know, oh, you, you know, you took care of our, our daughter years ago and so yeah it was a very nice reunion but I guess she's been doing quite well since then so I can't explain And, and did it. you
0: at the time at the, ty- at the time Jim did you get did you get to know that she'd survived and was doing well I mean how does that work?
1: Yeah I was able to just follow in in the charts uh, and I think I spoke with the cardiologist who ended up uh taking on the case down there at the other hospital uh, a few days later actually for an, another patient but I just asked him about uh, about this one and, and yeah he gave me the update so
0: how how do you how, how do you cope with something like that as a as a as a doctor and a person who wants to help and and solve problems and you know save this family's these parents' daughter yeah. you know how how do you deal with the aftermath of that
1: it's it's tough sometimes and the pediatric codes especially the ones that don't make it are 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 just uh, they're very difficult um but it's it's something that we're um I don't know if i would say used to but but we're just um used to dealing with you know you talk to your your colleagues and we've all been through similar experiences and and it's kind of weird i mean some of them for whatever reason or not hit you harder than, than other ones um, um but you just try to you know try to remind yourself that that you know you did everything you can and a lot of our job also is maybe not necessarily um saving someone's life, but, but helping them die with a little bit of dignity and comforts and, and also helping families see that, that, you know, that maybe the best course in, in specific situations is to let them die and not to continue to pump on their chests and do all these invasive procedures where, where, you know, the quality of life that the patient is going to have, even if they survive is, is not, is really not worth the, the pain and anguish that we're doing. Um, so a lot of times. It's, it's more helping people die than it is saving a life.
0: That example really brings it home how intrusive and difficult codes or medical interventions like the one you described can be. I've heard people talking about coding, but I had no idea what it really meant until you explained it, Jim. So thank you so much for like, telling us that story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And now to bring it on to the current situation and the pandemic, just thinking yeah. about your experience as a person, not specifically as a doctor, do you think the crisis has changed you?
1: Um, during the this specific outbreak, yeah. um, I hope just temporarily. I mean, other than just the, the normal things that we're seeing, um, you know, like having to keep distance, and I definitely have found that I'm kind of not making eye contact, or maybe not as warm or friendly, just to. to, to you know, strangers out, out in public, you know, you see somebody and you think, oh my God, I got to be six feet away. And, and you just kind of, you know, move to the side. <laughs> it feels a little weird to just, just be avoiding people mm-hmm. so much and, you know, just walking past somebody and saying hello or anything. So I don't know, maybe other people are, are uh, a little, maybe I'm the only one who's not making eye contact. I just don't notice because <laughs> I'm not looking, but, uh, but yeah, I find myself being a little more to myself out in public, I guess.
0: It's funny that because I'm I'm finding, I mean, I'm from the north of England, but, you know, stereotypically, northerners are warm, friendly. We say hello to anybody. If you do that down south where I live now, people generally move away oh, thinking you're some kind of nutter. But now, at the moment, people are saying hi. It's kind of the opposite to the situation you're describing.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And, and again, maybe it's me. I could be the problem. Maybe they're trying to say hi to me, but... <laughs> You know, I'm diverting my eyes, not looking noticing. the other way, and moving to the other side of the street. Then. <laughs> so, so maybe I should uh, maybe I should look around a little more and, and take part in what you're seeing as well.
0: On the subject of eye contact, um, you mentioned caring for COVID patients, and I've seen scenes on TV here of doctors, you know, fully masked up, um, only their eyes are visible to the patient. Patients have described how hard it can be without that human contact because relatives aren't allowed in the hospitals right now. What's it like?
1: Yeah, it's, it is strange. I mean, you gotta put the, the full spacesuit on to, to go in there. And yeah, you, you, know, you, don't, you, um, you gotta listen to the lungs and do an exam, but, but certainly you're gonna try to limit as much as you can. And it's just, it, it's a whole production to, to put on all the, the protective equipment to go in there, so it's not something that you can just run in the room real quick and and you know talk to them and then run out. So there definitely um, is, I think, less interaction. The nurses are really the ones that are doing all the heavy lifting through this and, and all the time actually in the hospital. I mean, you know, the nurse in there quite often with them. I, I go in, I, I get a quick history, do a quick exam, and then then I'll be gone until the end of the the visit. But the nurses are in there far longer. You know, starting the IVs, doing you know administering the medications, getting the vital signs, and. And, and so they're, they're in there a lot more than, 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 the physicians are.
0: So when you go in, just, it's hard to get my head around this. I mean, how long does it take you to put the protective equipment on and presumably you have to then take it off and put a new one on for the next patient? How does it work?
1: Yeah, I would, I don't know. It, uh, I would say probably five, 10 minutes at least, and each, each time, like put it on, then taking it off, you gotta be real careful because obviously if, if your gloves are contaminated and, and, you know, and you're taking everything off with your gloves, even if you're just taking your face mask off with your, with your gloves, then all of a sudden the face mask is contaminated, and, and, and then when you finally take gloves off, you start touching other things and, and you could really um, cause problems that way. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a long process. They get gowned up and, and, and go on. And especially if somebody is, say, going down the tubes quickly, I mean, you can't just run in there and, and put them on a ventilator. You've got to put the whole spacesuit on and, and hope to God that, that you know you have time to, to do all that before, before they, uh, they get worse.
0: And, ha- and how do you communicate with patients when you've got the spacesuit on as you describe it?
1: You just gotta talk louder. Really? <laughs> yeah, and they can hear you. They can. if You just gotta talk louder. They can hear you. Um, we also have. I think they have some kind of like video chat setup where I, where we, the nurses or I, could talk to them, you know, outside of the room. And but but you know, it's 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 a it's a strange existence. You know, it's a strange. Does way.
0: it does it call for you to be different in some way as a doctor? Mm. Not
1: so much medicine. It, everything I learned in medicine, uh, I, I, I could have skipped medical school and all of residency if I would have just listened to the first week of residency I had an attending that said, all you need to know is blood goes round and round, air goes in and out, and oxygen is good. And so that's that's it right there. That's all you need to know about how to practice medicine. <laughs> so it doesn't really, I mean, other than taking a lot longer to go in there and being Far more aware of of making sure that we're um, you know being uh, safe as far as protecting ourselves and the patients and the other patients. Um, everything everything else is still just just physiology and, and and medicine.
0: How does how does the fear influence things? I'm assuming that patients are very fearful. The hard and... ones,
1: and I guess this is consistent with all with all of emergency medicine too. You know, the hardest patients aren't really the, the sickest ones necessarily there. I mean, when somebody is sick, it's pretty easy to know what to do. Okay. They're, they're in respiratory failure. I need to put them on a ventilator. Okay. Their blood pressure is dropping. We need to give them certain medicines to, to get the blood pressure up or give them fluids. I mean, that's all easy. It's the in-between patients. It's like the, so the hard ones now are like the 80 year old uh, woman who comes in and says, oh, I've had a little bit of cough for a few days, you know, but her vital signs are totally normal. Her x-ray is normal. Um, I mean, she looks she looks fine. She doesn't look um, ill. Uh, we're not allowed to test those patients. The hospital will not allow us to to do a COVID test on those patients. Why not? Because uh, we only have 100. Right now, we only have 150 tests per week. And last Monday, we were down to nine. And so we're they're they're reserved for the the uh, very ill and admitted patients. There are other places you can get tested. In the state, as an outpatient, they have like, like kind of mass testing centers, but even those centers, um, are, you have to meet certain criteria. And it's just, it's just a matter of there's just not enough tests to go around, and it's a, it's a shame. But in some ways, the test, I don't know, it, it doesn't really change, other than being more guarded about how we're protecting ourselves, it doesn't really change the way we treat them medically. And especially because there really is no treatment, unfortunately, for these patients, other than symptomatic treatment. If they're in respiratory failure, you're gonna you're gonna put them on a ventilator. If they're whatever their blood pressure is low, you're gonna give them fluids or or medications called pressors. So all that it goes back to: blood goes round and round, air goes in and out, and oxygen is good.
0: How what's it like to know that there's no treatment? That that must be quite rare, is it? Not really. No? <laughs> then,
1: okay. No, there's a lot of, I mean, pretty much any virus, all the common colds and things like that that people come in with. And there's a lot of things that, that there's just no treatment other than symptomatic. Um, uh, the, the, the difference in this maybe is that it, it's, you know, common cold is a virus also, but usually it just runs its course and there's nothing to do. But still, people don't like to hear that either. They come to the ER and we diagnose them, okay, you have a, you know upper respiratory infection, which is probably viral. There's nothing to do. Well, they never like to hear that. Everybody wants a, a you know a quick fix, magic cure,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but obviously this is different, just because they can become so sick and 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 potentially die, despite everything that we can do for them. Um, so that makes it a little diff- more difficult, of course.
0: How do you cope with the difficult and extreme situations that you experience in ER, Jim? I know from our time sailing together that you're a fun and funny guy too. Does humor, black humor? come in as a coping mechanism?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I think I'd say that we're all a little, a little off and just going through all these different, um, you know, circumstances with patients and, and just all the, just the heartbreaking stuff you see in the air, ER, you have to be a little off. And, and, it, and if you're not at first, I, I think it changes you. I and mean, you have to, you have to be able to kind of separate yourself and, and not get too personally pulled into um, all, the, all the drama and, and real life drama that, that occurs there.
0: Mm, I guess you just wouldn't be able to handle it if you did, yeah so can you uh, tell us um obviously preserving patient confidentiality about something really funny that you've seen
1: yeah so there's it's kind of funny I mean we see crazy stuff all the time um, the thing is is I can never quite remember a lot of the the good stories when, when people ask me, um, <laughs> and I feel like it's kind of also it's like when you start dating somebody and their little quirks are really funny and cute. And then after 10 years, those little quirks aren't so funny and cute anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, so but yeah, there's a couple, a couple of things that, uh, cases that stand out. One was maybe, yeah, it was a long time ago, 10, 15 years ago, some, some woman comes in and she's huffing and puffing and she's complaining of abdominal pain. And of course, the first thing you ask is, is, is there any chance you could be pregnant? And she says, no. And so we say, okay, how come? She says, because I'm a lesbian. So okay, yes. fair enough. So we put her on a bed and, and start doing an exam, and all of a sudden, there's a head coming out of her vagina.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah,
1: and if you really want to see any human being try to avoid responsibility more, it's when an ER doctor has to deliver a baby. That is the absolute last <laughs> thing we ever want to do. I mean, we can do it. We've done it. But there's nothing more we'd like than to, to get that person to the, to the uh, OB-GYN. So... So I hopped on the, and this is one of those things that's like right out of a movie or right out of a TV show. I hopped on the bed and I'm like trying to push the head back in <laughs> and telling her, don't push, don't push. And, and so I'm on the bed, my hand in her pelvis, pushing the, trying to push the baby back in. And and the nurse is, is running us down the hall, like literally running down the hall, you know, in the bed to the OB department. And we get down there and tag your it, I am out of here. <laughs> so... So apparently she wasn't oh. a lesbian nine months previous to the, that visit, <laughs> at least for a day.
0: She, she genuinely didn't know she was pregnant. No,
1: it happens. I wouldn't say all the time, but it happens. I mean, yeah, it, you know, denial is a denial is a very strong tool.
0: It's a very strong tool, yeah. isn't it? And it can be a helpful tool in certain circumstances. Yeah. So, are you telling me that you're not trained to deliver a baby? No,
1: we are, but I just don't do it enough to be comfortable with it. I mean, it's, think about think about you know giving birth is 90 I don't know the real statistic but I'm just throwing one out 99% of the time it's it takes care of itself but it's that one percent of the time where things can go uh south very quickly and and that's just uh that's above my pay grade I mean we'll figure something out but but uh <laughs> I would much rather let the OB I love that you try to push me. your
0: baby back in that's brilliant
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah again denial is a very strong tool. <laughs> I was even to know I don't want this to happen i don't and want you know this to happen you know here. when
0: something like that happens you know does do you feel an adrenaline surge in your body or you are you sufficiently trained and used to it that that doesn't happen
1: no no it uh you know it always it always it perks you up that's for sure, and that's the hard thing about the e r is <laughs> that's one way the, of putting it the, it gets the heartbeat going for sure it uh that's the tough thing about the ER is, is, you know, every day you don't know what's coming in. It could be the slowest day in the world. You could have maybe only seen one patient in, in the last two or three hours, but all it takes is one, you know, in a split second. That could all change. So you're kind of always, you can never just completely let your guard down and relax. I mean, I mean, you always have this, again, it's, it's like, you know, like COVID, it's the, it's the unknown monster around the corner. I mean, at any time, the day can change drastically.
0: Jim you probably um, don't need to hear this but I just want to say thanks for what you're doing because right now seeing just on the TV what's going on and the idea that I'm talking to somebody now who's prepared to put themselves in big harm's way for the good of other people is quite an incredible thought for me so thank you and also thanks for sharing some of your thoughts and your incredibly interesting life with me.
1: Oh, oh thank you so much. It, it means a lot to hear that. It's uh, it, it's great to hear. It really means a lot to, for all of us to hear that. So thank you so much.
0: Jim's stories are so vivid and certainly gave me a deeper appreciation of what doctors and nurses go through as part of their jobs day-to-day really not just now but all the time. I really like Jim's introspectiveness and I feel that the pandemic has given us all a rare opportunity really to reflect on our own as well as others lives and experiences. Each of us is different of course and each of us have particular strengths and ways of relating and maybe you've had a chance to learn more about your strengths during this difficult time. So as some parts of the globe are lifting lockdown now and we begin to resume some semblance of normality, remember to look after yourself and take time to continue to reflect if you can. In the meantime, I leave you with the humble and kind Dr. Goldberg doing just that. Maybe you can relate to what he says.
1: Yeah. I'm kind of, I've, I've heard once before somebody describe different types of personalities or people, there's there certain people who, you know, the true introverts who, who, who are completely fine not talking to other people or much social interaction and, and they're, they're fine with that and it makes them happy. Then there's, of course, the extroverts who, who get a lot of energy and, and, um, and just love being social and out, you know, amongst people and, and they, they get energy from that. Then there's other people, which I feel like maybe I fall into, this category, which is, um, I really enjoy being social and and speaking with people, but it also is, I find it, I don't know if it it gives me energy. I feel a little drained after a while. Uh, So I know I need it and I know I enjoy it, but but, uh, I get a little tired
0: after a while. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave us a review. And if you'd like some help to reflect on your own strengths, check out my books, The Strengths Book and The Strengths Workbook. I'm grateful to Jim for generously letting us into his world and Harrison Lewis, my producer, for telling Jim's story with such integrity.